Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with an extraordinary and unprecedented legal development. Israel, South Africa, Italy, South Korea, Egypt, Peru. Just a few of the nations where a former head of state was indicted or prosecuted. Something pretty unimaginable here in the United States. Well, the first step toward the possibility of that happened today. As the former president's company, the Trump Organization, and its longtime money man, Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg, were formally indicted. Weisselberg appeared in court in lower Manhattan after surrendering to authorities this morning to face charges on tax crimes. In the, at the arraignment, Assistant District Attorney Carrie Dunn described a 15-year tax fraud scheme orchestrated by the most senior executives of the Trump Organization. The indictment unsealed today alleges that dating back to at least 2005, the Trump Organization and Weisselberg engaged in a scheme to defraud federal, state, and New York City tax authorities with the purpose of compensating Weisselberg and other Trump executives off the books. According to the indictment, Weisselberg received $1.76 million in indirect compensation, which was neither reported nor taxed. In all, there are 15 felony counts against Weisselberg and the Trump Organization, including second-degree larceny, conspiracy, tax fraud, and falsifying business records. Both Weisselberg and the Trump Organization pleaded not guilty to the charges. Weisselberg was released without bail, but agreed to surrender his passport. The former president was not charged. A spokesman for the Trump Organization said, make no mistake, this is not about the law, it's all about politics. This is the first criminal charge to stem from the two-year investigation by Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance and New York Attorney General Letitia James, and likely just a first step in the process for prosecutors, since it's likely the end game isn't Alan Weisselberg, who's just one figure in a company with a prolific history of tax avoidance. Following today's proceedings, Attorney General James noted that this investigation will continue and we will follow the facts and the law wherever they may lead. Before the hearing, Weisselberg's attorney said that he would fight the charges. But now that he actually faces criminal charges, he could still agree to cooperate with prosecutors. And with me now is Tom Winter, NBC News investigations correspondent. So, Tom, take us inside this proceeding today for Mr. Weisselberg and the Trump Corporation, the Trump Organization. You know, in many respects, uh, Joy, this was very similar to a lot of other arraignments that probably happened in that building today that had nothing to do with the gravity of the president, of the former president's uh, key business and his chief financial officer. Uh, it was quick. It was rushed. There was uh, chatter in the courtroom. It is not the type of uh, uh, type of atmosphere that we typically see in federal courts, very similar to uh, what we typically see day in and day out at state courts. But the difference is, obviously, we are talking about the the president's company and his chief financial officer. So there was definitely uh, a little bit of a different sense in the air today in anticipation for what we might actually learn. Because remember, we had no idea on what charges were actually being brought here and how extensive this was leading up to the court appearance. And even during the court proceedings, we didn't have a full sense of the scope of it until we got the public documents later on. So that was kind of the mood inside of the courthouse. I think uh, what a lot of people left the courtroom thinking and, and, and perhaps the better phrase is wondering is, 
where does this all go next? Because on its face, if you had given me this indictment, I would have said, you know what? This kind of feels like a CEO woke up one day and said, why is this guy, you know, running two sets of books? And why are we paying for his cars? And what's going on with this uh, condominium that we're or the or the apartment that we're uh, paying the payments for? So I think um, this doesn't immediately come across as something that matches up with what we've heard about so much over the past couple of years, which is an investigation looking at bank fraud, insurance fraud, um, and obviously tax fraud, which we did get today. So I think the questions that we're going to continue to ask is, is this something that is just part of the first inning or the top of the first inning? Um, or is this something where they really need Alan Weisselberg to uh, cooperate in order for everything else to fall together? Or do they just not have it, which is obviously another option. So I think time will tell. There's more reporting to do. Sure sounds like there's a lot more investigating to do for Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely sounds like that. Tom Winter, thank you very much. And with me now is Tristan Snell. Cheers, former New York Assistant Attorney General. Tim O'Brien, senior columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. And Tara Dowdell, Democratic strategist, former apprentice contestant and president of the Tara Dowdell Group. Thank you all for being here. And I, I do want to start on that. Uh, Mr. Snell, let's let's talk about that, because, you know, one would assume that the CFO of a company who is the longstanding financial sort of guru of that company, going back to Trump's father, would know that you can't take gifts like a free house and a free car and free stuff without reporting it, right? So if he didn't, it does, to Tom Winter's point, beg the question of if he knowingly still benefited in this way that he, you would think would have known better, what else were they up to? I think that's exactly the right question to ask. I think that what we saw today is, as a lot of people have been saying, the tip of a much larger iceberg. I think the thing that was most interesting to me in that entire indictment was the uh, were the allegations that they were actively, knowingly falsifying records, both internal records within the Trump organization, as well as then filing false tax returns. If they were extending that kind of practice, removing notations, adjusting numbers, if they were doing that with regard to the valuation of their properties with tax authorities and in turn with banks and lenders. That's the big case that's coming. So I think this might have been a bit of a, a teaser, a trailer, if you will, of coming attractions. And what does it tell you, Mr. Snell, uh, and this is you as a former prosecutor, that the grand jury still has months and months to go all the way until November? Does, is it, would it be likely that Weisselberg would be the ultimate target and that this would be it? Or does it, you know, the, the length of the grand jury and the fact that it's still extended, does that tell you something? The fact that they did the special grand jury six months, and by the way, it can be extended. It does not have to end in six months. They just have to go to a judge and get it approved for a longer period of time, which I still bet is what we're going to see. I don't think they're going to be done by November, December. I think this is, I think they're going to keep the grand jury going into 2022. Uh, but I think that you're seeing here uh, really, again, the beginning of something much larger. These, by the way, this doesn't mean these, this is the last we're going to see of indictments, uh, charges brought against Alan Weisselberg. There could still right. be more brought against him later, too. But this is the beginning of, I think that, look, if you read all of this together and the news reports and reading between the lines of everything, what's clear is that there have been, almost certainly, discussions between Weisselberg's counsel and the DA's office about Weisselberg cutting a deal. They haven't gotten there. Weisselberg basically called their bluff. And, and this was the response. 
no, sir, we are not bluffing. Here's your indictment. Here are your handcuffs. We'll see you in court. Now can you reconsider? This is part of a chess match. Yeah, I think that that sounds right. And Tara, I have to go to you on this because you're a business owner. You've dealt with Donald Trump. You know how he operates. It, it, does it seem conceivable to you that Alan Weisselberg could have benefited and received all of these gifts, his family, his kids, received all of this stuff, not accounted for it in the books, not accounted for it in the corporate company's taxes without Donald Trump being aware of that? Absolutely not. Because first of all, we know just from his presidency, let alone all the years in business, because this is not his first rodeo in terms of investigations, Trump Soho was investigated, specifically Don Jr. and Ivanka, and they had emails that had them dead to, dead to rights, but that's a different issue. But there is no way that Donald Trump would have him in that position for that long. We saw from his presidency how easily he discards people who disobey him. There is no reason you would stay in that supreme superior position high up that food chain with direct access to Donald Trump if you weren't doing his bidding. To me, what this shows is that he was explicitly there to carry out Donald Trump's orders and to do it so that Donald Trump didn't have to do it. It's a good point. And, and I can recall, uh, Tim O'Brien, back on a, in my AM Joy days, you said to me, uh, sitting across the table, that Alan Weisselberg will be the one that prosecutors will focus on because he's the one who keeps the numbers, right? And so just from your point of view, having covered Donald Trump so long, I guess, I guess I'll ask you the same question. I mean, th this is, you know, roughly $900,000 in tax evasion, $556,000 in federal, $106,000 in state. It's, it seems like a, a fairly sort of mundane tax fraud case. But what do you think is the bigger picture here? Well, clearly, Joy, the bigger picture is whether or not they're going to catch Donald Trump and other members of the Trump organization in much more egregious frauds, possibly involving bank fraud and tax fraud. Possibly money laundering could be in play here. Um, I think um, for as sort of meat and potatoes as this case was, it was far more sweeping than anyone expected. Alan Weiselberg faces a maximum of 15 years in prison if he's found guilty on these charges. I doubt he'll get a sentence that big, but he's a 70, that long, but he's a 74-year-old man. He, he's not going right. to want a two-year right. sentence or a three-year sentence. This really demonstrates how much leverage the VA's office possibly has over Ellen Weisselberg now, and it's much more muscular than anyone thought about, I think, over the last week when some of the echoes of this were being uh, being heard. I think secondarily, this issue of Donald Trump and his relationship to Alan Weisselberg, there's two baskets here. Did anything happen at the Trump Organization of financial significance that Donald Trump didn't know about? Absolutely not. We deposed Donald Trump for two days under oath in 2007 on a range of parallel issues. And during the course of that deposition, he made it very clear that anytime they presented a financial picture of the Trump organization to the outside world, including banks and the media, it was in conjunction with Alan Weisselberg, and they conferred extensively with one another before they did it. But the legal issue here is whether or not the DA's office can actually prove that in an right. with an evidentiary trail. And that's the hurdle for them. I don't think they would have convened, convened a grand jury and gone after a former president with criminal charges unless they were very confident they had evidence that approximated that. So we're very much in the first act of this. There are going to be more acts. And I think Trump and his legal advisors have lots of reasons to worry because the issue here now is, 
is the leverage here to make Alan Weisselberg flip? And I would suggest that, yes, it exists, and it exists in a, in a very robust way. Mr. Snell, you seem to be agreeing with that. You agree with that as somebody who's been down this road before, I believe, with the Trump uh, organizations and charities. Yeah, I mean, the the, the kicker here is you've got, uh, they, they wouldn't have elevated this to a criminal probe uh, and done the grand jury. Uh, it was the AG's office elevating to a criminal probe and joining the DA's office and then together doing the grand jury. This was a very public step. People still just don't realize how significant that was in the first place. Uh, the Both offices were staking their reputations on this, two elected officials uh, that both had a lot to lose and a lot to gain by doing this. When they did this, it's because they were confident that they had the goods. And remember, at the end of the day here, the star witness really is not Alan Weisselberg. It isn't anybody else. The star witness is really the documents. That's yeah. a lot less sexy to say that. But the star witness here is the documents. The documents already got them 80, 90 percent of the way there. You're yeah. bringing the grand jury to see if you can if you can tighten it up even more. How close can you get to 100 percent that you know this is a slam dunk? You get Alan Weisselberg to flip, you're up in the high 90s. Like this yeah. is really looking very good. That doesn't mean that they're at like 50 percent if they don't get him to flip. It means they're at like 93 percent in terms of like how good they feel about it. They never would have brought this unless the documents already tell most of the tale. Yeah. And otherwise, because we have to remember this too, the one more thing, the civil investigation that the AG's office still has, that's in their back pocket. That alone, without having to prove intent, could be enough to cause restitution and penalties in the amount of hundreds of millions of dollars wow. to the Trump organization. An economic case there does not require the proof of intent. That alone would be huge punishment. I know people are looking for justice here. They want to see yeah. prison sentences in some cases yeah. here. Oh, but for that Trump, civil the money is, is what he cares huge. about the most. They didn't need yeah. to, they didn't need to go criminal. They went criminal because yeah. they have the goods. That's why they yeah. did it. At the lightning round for Tim and uh, Tara. Tim first. Does Weisselberg flip on Trump or stay loyal? Uh, I think Weisselberg flips on Trump. And remember, there were references in that indictment to other executives or other people at the Trump organization who are, who are aware of this and may have participated in the same activities. They're in play as well. Not everything depends on Alan Weisselberg, but they get a long way if they get him. And I think they might. Yeah. Uh, Tara, does Weisselberg stay loyal in the mafioso sense or do you think ultimately he flips? <laughs> I think it depends. I think on. I think it depends on how hot the heat is, right? Uh, and I know that right now, what we know about Donald Trump, he's pressuring Weisselberg, not himself directly, but through intermediaries, through coded language, through coded messages. Right now, there's enormous pressure on Weisselberg, and I'm sure he's offering him something. We know how he operates. The Trump playbook has been the same playbook for decades. So yeah, I think and all of those factors are going to play into it. Well, if he, if he interferes with him, that might be another crime. Uh, Tristan Snell, Tim O'Brien, Tara Dowdell, thank you all very much. And coming up on the readout, no one knows better the, pos the position that Weisselberg is in right now and the heat that he's feeling than Michael Cohen. I have a lot of questions for him on today's indictments. Plus, a major part of John Roberts' Supreme Court legacy will be the damage done to voting rights in America. Today, he struck another blow. Plus, it's about protecting our country from the, the negative forces that provoked that attack on the Capitol. Well, she plays politics all the time. Despite Republican efforts to sweep the events of January 6th under the rug, there will be accountability. 
Today, members of the select committee were chosen. One of them joins me. And tonight's absolute worst is selling the troops to the highest bidder. The readout continues after this. In a 6-3 ruling written by Samuel Alito, the most reliably conservative justice, the Supreme Court dealt another violent blow against democracy by upholding two restrictive Arizona voting laws, forbidding the collection of absentee ballots by anyone other than family or caregivers and allowing the tossing of ballots inadvertently cast in the wrong precinct. It's the latest notch in the belt of Chief Justice John Roberts, whose life work, really, since his days as an influential aide in the Reagan Justice Department, has been to destroy the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act. Today, with help from his conservative allies on the court, in a decision he previewed by assigning the ruling to arch-conservative Alito in the first place, well, he got closer to that goal. Justice Elena Kagan, in a fierce dissent, slammed the decision, writing, quote, the majority fears that the statute Congress wrote is too radical. So the majority writes its own set of rules, limiting Section 2 from multiple directions. What is tragic here is that the court has yet again rewritten in order to weaken a statute that stands as a monument to America's greatness, unquote. Since Roberts has been on the bench, the court has eviscerated federal preclearance of changes to voting procedures and gutted the intent test, which prohibited states from enacting voting uh, voting practices with racist intent. Thanks to Roberts, nearly all of the pillars of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5 and now Section 2, have been defanged, leaving the country closer to our Jim Crow past than to our civil rights era. According to Vox, the rulings endorse phantom fears about voter fraud, a phenomenon that barely exists, and it permits lawmakers to enact voting restrictions intended to combat the largely imaginary problem. Sadly, the conservative decision shows shows you just how central the big lie has become to Republican orthodoxy. What's far more troubling is what this decision means for future cases before the courts. According to Alito, states can pretty much do whatever they want to suppress the vote as long as they don't make it obvious. The only remaining question is what will Congress and more specifically, what will Democrats do about it? Joining me now is Ellie Mastal, Justice Correspondent for The Nation, and Neil Katyal, former Acting Solicitor General. Um, Neil, I'll start with you. Did you expect this decision? Because it seemed like all of those who were previewing it said that the only question was how the DNC uh, who brought this case originally would lose, not whether they would lose. Yeah, unfortunately, it was an expected decision, although some of the rhetoric and and language in the decision goes beyond anything I think I feared. Um, But, you know, I had the privilege of arguing and say uh, the the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act in 2010. Chief Justice and others gave me a really hard time at the oral argument, uh, but we won that eight to one. Uh, back at that time with Justice Thomas being the only dissent. But then four years later, in a case called Shelby County, the Supreme Court struck down that part of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5. And the court has been on a real hostility to this act. And I think Justice Kagan really uh, cataloged it in the dissent. And so, you know, in one sense, it's expected. In another, to have this decision say or suggest that voter fraud is like some real problem that states (laughs) have a lot of leeway to solve. I mean, you can read this ruling a lot of different ways as a critic, as a citizen. But I think one way we should read it tonight is as one of those southern states that is trying to disenfranchise African-American voters. And what this decision did is give a rhetoric and a how-to book on how to do it, which is why legislation is so important. 
Oh, 100 percent. And, you know, maybe perhaps coincidentally, uh, election integrity and preventing voter fraud were the reasons for the original Jim Crow laws. They all said, oh, no, we're just doing this to prevent voter fraud. Uh, They did that at the time. Um, Ellie, this is what Justice Alito has now said. He's written his own law, which is that there are five factors that courts um, have to consider whether or not a law is discriminatory. So when courts are faced with time, place, and manner cases under the Voting Rights Act, he writes, any circumstance that has a, lo- a logical bearing on whether voting is equally open and affords equal opportunity may be considered. Nevertheless, he also provides a non-exhaustive list of, here's his five factors that should be mentioned. The size of the burden imposed by a challenged voting rule, the degree to which a voting rule departs from what was standard practice when the Voting Rights Act was amended in 1982, the size of any disparities in a rule's impact on members of different racial or ethnic groups, the opportunities provided by a state's entire system of voting when assessing the burden imposed by a challenged provision and the strength of the state interests survived by challenging voting rule, he, uh, rule, rules. He decided essentially that states have an interest in preventing so-called voter fraud and that as long as it, it was just an inconvenience, it's OK to t- disenfranchise people. Am I reading that right? Yeah. To drop out some of the legal jargon here, Alito's standard is basically as long as you don't say the N-word when you are taking away people's votes, it is fine. That That is the essential takeaway from his opinion. These laws in Arizona that he just held up with the help of, of John Roberts, as you explained, his lifetime commitment to destroying this act, these laws were racist by empirical definition. That's not me having a conjecture. It was empirically shown that these laws had a disparate impact on black and brown and native voters in Arizona. The plaintiffs, the state of Arizona, admitted that these laws had a disparate impact and admitted that that's why they were there. But like, let's be clear, the, the, the Arizona said that the reason why they wanted these laws is to help them win elections by depressing the vote, right? And then the Supreme Court, in, in Alito's opinion, the Supreme, uh, he says that uh, the, the, for one of the laws that allowed them to discard ballots cast in the wrong precinct, um, Alito said that 1% of African Americans and 1% of Native Americans and 1% of Hispanic uh, Americans cast their ballots in the wrong precinct, while only 0.5% of white Americans cast their votes in the wrong precinct. But that racism just wasn't enough. What Wasn't enough racism to trigger the Voting Rights Act. I must be nice to have a job where you can tell other people how much racism is real. <laughs> um, but well, but that's, that's the decision. That's the upshot here. As long as you don't make it completely obvious that you're doing something um, uh, with bigotry in your heart, as if that was easy to prove, then Alito is going to let you do it. I mean, and and honestly, before, in case anyone thinks this is hyperbole, Neil, in theory, according to Alito's theory, if in 1982 there were laws in place saying that you had to pass a literacy test and read a complicated passage from Shakespeare in order to vote, he could then argue that, well, that's not racist because, you know— if you if you if a white or a black person or anybody can read this complicated passage from Shakespeare, they can vote. I mean, it's the same if, if bubbles in a bar of soap. Guess how many bubbles are in this bar of soap? If that had been in place in 82 and you can't show that it's a substantial difference to say, you know, guess the bubbles in the soap. He could just, they those laws never said black in them. They never said race in them. They never said any race in them. They just said, tell us how many bubbles are in this soap. And then they just so happen to only ask the black people to guess the bubbles. In this case, in Arizona, you know, the fact that you're voting in the wrong precinct. Precincts were being moved, but only the black and brown precincts were being moved. 
So what he, he's basically saying, you can do guess the bubbles in a bar of soap as long as you don't say black, right? Exactly, Joy. I love how you followed up on Ellie's great point. Um, and, you know, there's two different ways of proving discrimination in the law. One is called disparate treatment. That is, you're intentionally going after someone because of their race. And the other is a disparate impact in which, you know, you're looking at statistics and other things. And of course, in the modern era, almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone avoids the use of terms like what Ellie referred to before. Um, and in state legislatures or even the president does. When I was arguing the Muslim ban, his lawyer's defense was, well, it doesn't say it discriminates against Muslims in the text of the order. Of course not, because modern discrimination hides itself through patterns and practices and data and things like that. And so the question in this case was whether or not that would be enough. And Elian, you're absolutely right that the test that's being proposed now to legitimize Arizona's laws would legitimize a whole host of other things, which is why I think the conversation has to move nationally to how we get these Voting Rights Acts passed. You know, back when I argued the Voting Rights Act case in 2010, it had just been reauthorized in the Congress, in the House, by 421 to 3, and in the Senate, 98 to 0. That was, you know, those, those votes underscore that this is the most American thing we could imagine, the right to vote. And how could it be deprived? How could the Supreme Court be writing these opinions? It's time for Congress to act. Well, of course, Neil, because racism no longer exists. According to John Roberts, racism is over because Obama was president. Therefore, you know, one out of 320 million people who is black was elected president. Poof, racism's gone. And by the way, this so you think that we're just bringing up hyperbole again. Florida actually enacted a poll tax. If you serve prison time to come back, you have to pay a poll tax. And that's now legal, according to uh, Justice Alito. Perfect. We've gone backwards. Ellie Mistal, Neil Cattell. Thank you very much. Still ahead. Is Kevin going all authoritarian on us? The House Minority Leader reportedly threatened to retaliate against Republicans if they accepted an appointment to Speaker uh, from Speaker Pelosi to serve on the January 6th Select Committee. Well, guess what? Liz Cheney did just that. Joining seven Democrats announced by Pelosi earlier today. One of those Democrats will be here next. Today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced the appointed members of the newly created Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. One Republican will be among them, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who was purged from House Republican leadership for daring to oppose Trump's insurrection. Our oath to the Constitution, our duty, uh, our dedication to the rule of law and the peaceful transfer of power uh, has to come above any any concern about partisanship or, or about politics. According to three of our sources, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy actually threatened to strip Republican House members of their committee assignments if they accept an appointment from Pelosi to the Select Committee, to which Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois, one of the other Republicans to vote for the committee, responded, who gives a S.H.? You know the rest. This latest Republican stonewalling comes as a New York Times compilation further and dramatically contradicts the Republican attempt to rewrite the events of that day. On January 6th, I never felt threatened because I didn't. I knew those are people that love this country, that uh, truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to, to break a law. Then the police lose the line. 
lost the line. We lost the line. All we need, pull back. Why hasn't that officer that executed Ashley Babbitt been named when police officers around the country are routinely identified after a shooting? They scuffle again with a small group of officers who give in after barely a minute. The mob now has direct access to capital entrances. There was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. If you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. is now surrounded. That was some wild tourism. Joining me now is Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida, one of the members of the Select Committee to investigate the attack on the United States Capitol. And uh, Congresswoman, thank you so much for being here. So let's Great let, to be let, with let's, you. Thank you. Let's talk about the elephant in the room or the genie in the room, actually. You are going to have one Republican colleague. It, it strikes me that it was terrible politics for Kevin McCarthy to throw her, Liz Cheney out of leadership because she was criticizing the fact that our capital was attacked and that there was an insurrection, he essentially empowered her and freed her to take this role on the committee with, with, with you all. How do you expect that interaction to play out, given her already very vocal stance, um, including on Kevin McCarthy's role? You know, it's a real uh, statement about where the Republican Party is today, that they actually threw a member of leadership out for daring to speak the truth. Um, and I'm really uh, proud and looking forward to working with um, Representative Cheney. She and I worked on the House Armed Services Committee together, and I know her as somebody who is a patriot. While we may have policy differences, um, she is dedicated to this country and upholding the Constitution, just as the other members of the select committee are. Oh, oh no, Adam Kinzinger and Chin, I don't agree with anything that they stand for. They, they voted with Trump 90% of the time. The fact is they're putting country first. Here's what Kevin McCarthy said about her today. I was shocked that she would accept something from Speaker Pelosi. It would seem to me, since I didn't hear from her, maybe she's closer to her than us. I don't know. Do, do you, is this, this is not team. I mean, can you just explain? Here are the people who are going to be on this committee, along with yourself, along with uh, Representative Cheney, Adam Schiff, who prosecuted uh, one of the cases against Donald Trump impeachment, Zoe Lofgren, um, Pete Aguilar, Steph, uh, you, um, Jamie Raskin, brilliant, who was also involved in the impeachment, and Elaine Luria of Virginia. Is, do you see this as teams, or do you see this as an investigation that's meant to be sober and serious into what happened? This is an investigation that is sober and serious and apolitical into what happened. This is uh, Americans who love this country, who are patriotic, who are dedicated to upholding the Constitution, who want to get the facts about what happened on January 6th, the circumstances that led up to that, so that we can provide a comprehensive report and then recommendations on how we keep our country safe. And that is the utmost importance. I 
I have an obligation to the staff who come to work here every day, to the press corps who are here, to my fellow uh, members of Congress, as well as to the public that come to this building to witness democracy in action, to get the facts on this situation and ensure that this never happens again, that we can secure not only the Capitol, but our democracy. Um, let me play very quickly Kevin McCarthy um, on January 14th. We have it. Oh, sorry about that. It was Kevin McCarthy saying that Trump bears responsibility. We don't have the audio of it, but he said that Trump bears responsibility for what happened. Um, do you expect Kevin McCarthy to be called, and do you expect Donald Trump to be called and subpoenaed as witnesses? Well, we are still in the organizing stages, and um, I don't want to get ahead of the committee as to who we will call. What we have said to date is that we are likely to bring in the law enforcement officers, the Capitol Police, as well as D.C. Police, who were victims as well on January 6th to share their experiences. Um, and that will be one of the first hearings that we hold. We also intend to let staff as well as um, members uh, share their experiences. At the end of the day, this committee, uh, the select committee, is going to follow the facts wherever and to whomever uh, they go. And they're going to be public hearings, right? Though there will be a combination of both public and private hearings is what I anticipate. Okay, okay wonderful. Uh, Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you. Uh, thank you. And still ahead, a Republican governor renting out her state's National Guard troops to a billionaire donor makes her a top candidate for tonight's absolute worst. But first, there is no one better positioned to provide insights into what's going through Alan Weisselberg and Donald Trump's noggins today than Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen. And he joins us. Next. More now on today's top story, the indictments of Donald Trump's company and one of its senior executives. If there's anyone who understands what Trump CFO Alan Weisselberg is going through right now, it is Michael Cohen, who was also indicted for charges related to Trump, though he pled guilty, unlike Weisselberg, who, at least for now, says he plans to fight the charges. I'm joined now by Michael Cohen, personal attorney to Donald Trump and author of Disloyal and the host of the Mia Culpa podcast. And Michael, let's start there. Give us a sense of what it's like to be Alan Weisselberg today. Yeah, it's probably not a good feeling. First of all, the handcuffs don't really feel great on your, you know, on your wrists. Uh, second of all, uh, it's very surreal when you're being perp walked to the judge's chambers uh, in order to hear charges that are going to be brought against you. Um, I've often said that, you know, there's a big difference between when you're under investigation and then you're formally indicted as what I went through and now what Alan Weisselberg is going through. Because the stakes are now real. Before, they're not real. You, you, you sit there, you walk around, you go out with your family, and you wonder what they're going to come up with. Well, now you know what they're coming up with. And you know that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Nobody, yeah. nobody should realistically believe for a second that the indictment that came down today is the end-all, be-all. It is not. The district attorney, um, along, you know, Cyrus Vance, along with Mark Pomerantz, have substantially more documents and more indictments will be coming as a result. I want to get into that more in a second, but I, I want to get your reaction to this political reporting that Donald Trump is thrilled that the indictment was not against him, that it was against Weisselberg and his company. What do you make of that? 
Of course he is, right? Because Donald Trump doesn't care about Donald doesn't care about anyone or anything other than himself. What's going to happen? All of a sudden, you're going to have Donald Trump standing up and saying, "What?" It's like the Shaggy song. It wasn't me. And then <laughs> next thing you know, he's going to turn around. He's going to be pointing, Alan. You should have known. You're my CFO. Understand, Alan Weisselberg is not a CPA. He's a bookkeeper. And then what they're both going to do, knowing frickin' frack, as I described them in my book, Disloyal, they're going to turn around, they're going to point to Mazers, to the accountant at Mazers and say, whoa, whoa, you knew this and you should have been warning us because that's all that they're good at is deflecting their illegalities onto somebody else. It wasn't me. It's him. And if it's not him, look at him. But Donald doesn't care if it's going to be Alan or it's going to be the accountants at Mazers or somebody else. It doesn't matter as long as it's not him. It's an amazing, <laughs> it's just an amazing, um, you know, way about him, you know, where yeah. again, it, he'd rather be his children than be himself. Yeah, uh, there, there is a we had a, a, a former prosecutor on earlier um, who said that that, you know, and I, and I think you've made this point before, that there are these millions of documents. There's just a ton of documentation that is the real star of this case, not necessarily Weisselberg. What do you mean by that? What kind of documents do you think there are out there and, and, and what how damaging could they be? Well, I know the documents because I've spent more than 10 occasions with district attorney. So I'm very familiar. And one of the things that we know that they got is a direct result of my House Oversight Committee hearing and then my participation when I was still at Otisville with the district attorney is his tax returns. And there's a million pages just right there. Then, of course, we also know that there were documents that were taken by Rudy, um, were taken from Rudy's electronic devices that, of course, also deal with Donald Trump and if it deals with Donald Trump and there's any money involved, Alan Weisselberg is attached to it. It's just that simple. But here's the interesting thing, and I've said this on other shows now. Alan is not the target. Uh, he's going to be um, collateral damage, but he's not the target. And he's also not the end-all, be-all to this investigation. There are others who can testify to the information that the district attorney is going to need, myself included, there's that information that we can testify to that would show the illegality and the culpability by the various different individuals from Alan to Don Jr. to Eric to Ivanka to Don Donald himself. So, you know, there's also other individuals, other executives at the Trump organization that receive the same type of benefits. These these, um, you know, um, apartment, these car benefits. Uh, at the Trump Organization, Matt Calamari, as an example. So there, he's not the only one that's getting it. So there's this indictment is going to be much larger. It's going to be obviously much broader in its scope. And despite the fact that Donald wants to now sit there and say, ah, if this is it, you know, then they got nothing. They have nothing. That's just typical Donald Trump talk. What he's thinking is that he's going to say it. He's going to get his lawyers who got up and they said the exact same thing. They were appealing to a party of one. And he thinks that the more that people say it, the more it'll become a reality. But here's the truth. And we know this, Joy. It's not true. And the district attorney is not interested or impressed with um, Donald's choices of counsel. And it's not going to end well. And, you know, I've made a lot of predictions, many on this show, many on others. I've been right pretty much most of the time. It's not going to end well for any of them.
You know, uh, Alan Weisselberg reportedly has had conversations with Donald Trump and has been in touch with him. When you were facing this same situation, did Donald Trump try to induce you to stay loyal? And do you think that that's a possibility here with Alan Weisselberg? And do you think Weisselberg will stay loyal to him and go to jail for him? Yeah. So let me start with the last part. No, nobody wants to go to jail. It's an ugly place. Even if you're at Otisville, you know, satellite camp, it's an ugly place. Being away from your wife, being away from your children, being away from your, the rest of your family and your friends, it's really, it's soul wrenching. And Alan is 74 years old. He has yeah. no interest in spending his golden years in any institution. Remember, it's not federal, it's state. So yeah. it's not yeah. as allegedly luxurious as a federal camp. Then on top of that, will he turn? He'll have no choice because they're also going to bring in his children because yeah. Barry worked for the company and Jack was involved in lending uh, through ladder capital to the company. So the answer is no, um, he doesn't want to go. And will he end up flipping unless he's stupid, then he's <laughs> then he'll flip. I mean, who in their right mind and understand Donald will not go to prison if he could blame somebody else. And that's including Alan. So Alan yeah. has to understand he's by himself. And that's what happened to me. This answers the first part of your question. I the last time I spoke to Trump was the day of the raid. That's it. It was the. Yeah. And then after that, I started listening to various different people telling me that this yeah. is exactly what's going to happen. And it did. He yeah. ran away from me and, you know, allowed me to. To pay the Do price for his right crimes. Now. Yes. Absolutely. Well, Michael Cohen, always appreciate you, know, you being on the show. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your insights. All right. Up next, billionaires spending big bucks to shape American policy is nothing new, but it usually doesn't involve the U.S. military. Tonight's absolute worst is next. The roaming gnome is back at it again. Governor Christy Nome, that is. It would appear that our inaugural absolute worst is jealous of all the attention our two record holders, Republican governors Greg Abbott of Texas and Florida's Ron DeSantis, are getting. So she's sending South Dakota's National Guard troops roaming, deploying them to the southern border of Texas, joining fellow MAGA sycophant DeSantis and the governors of Iowa and Nebraska in sending help to the border. 50 National Guard troops are being deployed in response to Greg Abbott's plea for more border security for a non-existent crisis. Noam said they'll be there for two to three months in a word salad statement of GOP talking points, border, blah, 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 adding, my message to Texas is help is on the way. Actually, Christy, your message is I'm running for president in 2024. This is how I pander to the MAGA crowd and check the box on immigration fear mongering to compete with Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis. Yay. For his part, Abbott was palling around with Orange Julius Caesar for some photo op nonsense at the border yesterday. It's also worth noting that those other governors are sending state law enforcement officers, not National Guard troops. But any hoopst, the story is far stranger and far more dangerous than just the ordinary political pandering and fear mongering around the issue of the border. The absolute worst is uh, something that she slipped in at the end of her announcement, that the deployment would be paid for by a private donation, specifically money from a billionaire GOP mega donor, Tennessee junk auto parts magnate and orange man super fan Willis Johnson, who fronted the undisclosed sum. He told the Daily Beast that he reached out to Nome because he saw what DeSantis was doing and thought South Dakota had fewer resources. A spokesman for Nome acknowledged the donation came from Johnson's foundation and said it was to alleviate the cost to South Dakota taxpayers. So there you have it. 
This is where we've come to, America. A super wealthy political donor is paying for American soldiers to deploy on a military mission with political undertones. According to The Washington Post, military policy experts blasted the move, quote, privately funding a military mission is an affront to civilian oversight of the armed forces and likely unprecedented and unethical, which sounds about right, since no one's really sure if it's totally legal. But it's certainly not in the best interest of South Dakotans, and it's totally political theater. So, Christy Noem, for offering up South Dakota's National Guard as mercenaries for a wealthy donor to stoke nativist fears and curry favor for your own political aspirations, you, my dear, are tonight's absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout. 